morning again. If you have your Bible, Jude in the New Testament is where we're at, page 866 in the church Bibles. It's one book to the left of the book of Revelation. And uh, while you're turning there, um, if you have questions about Jesus Christ, the Bible, or what you heard this morning, it'd be wonderful to try to answer those questions. So when our time is through and those questions come, then I'll be up here waiting for you um, when everything has been accomplished. So we're going to read the first four verses of Jude this morning, and then as always, we're going to pray for the needed help. Jude, verse 1, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who have been called, who are loved by God the Father and kept by Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith, faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. For certain men, and you'll remember we said that can be translated people, certain people, certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are godless men who change the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ our only sovereign and Lord. Amen. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Let's bow together and let's pray. Our gracious God, you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they are created and have their very existence. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways. King of the ages, who will not fear you, obey you? Who will not bring glory to your name? For all humanity will bow before you. All humanity will one day worship you, for you are king and your kingdom will outlast every earthly authority. So we would plead with you, Father, that you would have your way now. You have gathered us here, so we pray that you would accomplish your purposes, that you would please, please bring great, exceptional, magnificent glory to yourself and to your Son and to the Holy Spirit and to your gospel. We pray that you would convert, convict, convince, humble, help, and comfort in ways that you alone know and deem best. We are completely dependent on you. And so we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. And we would ask that his mercy and his peace and his love be ours now in an ever-increasing measure as the seconds and minutes go by. And we ask this for Jesus' sake alone. Amen. Well, if you were with us last time, you will recall that what we did was took a broad look at this very brief letter that was written by the stepbrother of our Lord Jesus Christ, Jude. And what we discovered was that the enemies of Jesus Christ and his church, as is so often the case, were not outside the church, but actually inside the church. It was very, very disappointing to hear that. They were in the church, but they not, were not genuinely part of the church. They were, among other things, lawless, and so they were Christless, or as Jude writes, verse 4, you can see it there if your Bible is open, which I hope it is, they were godless. 
We then took note that all this, although this state of affairs mattered greatly to Jude, but because ultimately this letter came from God through the pen of Jude, it mattered greatly to God. Therefore, to close our eyes to the teaching of Jude is to know best how to ruin a church. Then, as we took a look at Jude's greeting, we found that Jude was a very uniquely humbled man that left with the choice of writing Jude, half-brother of Jesus Christ, or Jude, a servant, or as we learned, the word there was doulos, or slave of Christ. When left with that choice, he didn't choose the former, and he didn't choose both. But he did choose the latter, Jude, verse 1, a servant, a slave of Jesus Christ. And we said that that was a lesson for those, for those of us who are prone to be name droppers, enjoying the status or the elevation such a thing may offer us. So in my studies this week, I, I kept thinking about what the Hebrew writer wrote in, in Mo, about Moses, chapter 11 of the book of Hebrews, when he said, by faith... Moses, when he had grown up, when he was mature, he refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He was not a name dropper. So it is any wonder that Numbers 12, 3 says of Moses, now Moses was a very humble man, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. So think, Moses, this is God. You're going to have to lead these stiff-necked people, these unruly people, and they will oppose you, and they will question you, and they will fight you, and they would see you dead. But Moses, these are my people. Will you love them into the promised land? What else could he say? Yes, Lord, I am your servant. What else can I do? Now, what's so important about that is because Moses is a typograph of of Jesus. It's pointing to Jesus. Jesus, this is your father. Jesus, you're going to have to leave heaven and go to earth. And and you're going to have to lead these stiff-necked people, these unruly people, just soaking with sin. And they're going to oppose you, and they will question you, and they will see you dead to a cross. But they're my people. Will you love them and will you take on their sin and you will will you swallow my wrath and, and will you open the way to the promised land? Yes, Lord. Hebrews 10, 7. This is Jesus. Here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, will, which is what servants of Jesus Christ do. They do the revealed will of God. So, so here in Jude, is it any wonder that Jude, as a slave of Christ, a servant compelled to put every command and every initiative of Christ in his revealed will as first and best in every part of his existence... That's what good servants do. He would be compelled to write this letter in this difficult, difficult circumstance to tell his readers to contend for the faith, contend for the gospel. And as you read on, he draws lessons from the past so that the church could be fa- patient in her affliction. The church can be merciful to the doubters, firm against those who would try to unsettle or undermine their faith. And therefore, the church would keep keeping on as God's true people. Now, all that was last time. So what we'll do this time is begin at the, the bottom there of verse 1b to guide us through these opening verses. You see it there, verse 1b, and I, and I gave it the heading, a thoughtful reminder. Thoughtful reminder because the letter was written by Jude to Christians. And so we are not told who they are by location, but then we are told who they are by identification. 
which is going to prove invaluable for their particular situation because Jude writes there at the end of verse 1, three marks of a genuine Christian. Okay, Verses 1b and 2 then would appear on the surface as, as just another customary greeting. Like, oh, this is just Christian niceties. This is a gazuntike. This is a God bless you. So they, this is kind of warm them up. All Christian writers do this. The meat of the letter is much more important, so let's just skip over this too quickly, but we say no to that. Because we say no to that because when you look closer, you ask yourself the question, why, why is Jude writing these three genuine marks of genuine Christianity to the believers? Well, if you've been raised in a good, sound, safe, gospel-centered home, then you should thank God. Okay? Now, a gospel-centered home is not the same thing as a strict home or, or, or even a Christian home, little c, where we're just creating little Pharisees. That's another sermon. But a gospel-centered home, if you've been raised in a gospel-centered home, then you should thank God. If you haven't been, then my guess is you're going to understand what I'm about to say to you better than most. Because one of the best things, the precious things about being raised in a good, sound, safe, gospel-centered home is the stability and the security, the tenderness, the, the, the general sense of everything is always going to be all right because, because God is here and God brings that into the whole family by way of his gospel graces. So when the family thinks about their past and their present and their future, it's not looked on with strife or angst. They have good lines of thinking. I'm loved by God and the world will be what it is. And I'm wonderfully loved by my parents. And yeah, we have our moments, but the overarching moment is stability, is security, is gentleness and generosity and no fear. No fear because it's a gospel-centered home. But personally speaking, many of the people that I've talked to over the years who did not have such a home, oftentimes when they look at their past and they look at their present and they look about their future, they speak with no stability. They have no anchor. They, they have no assurances. They have no assurances that everything's going to be all right. And, they're, and it's almost like they're trained to be worried about everything. In fact, if these kind of people are type A people, then it's so, it's so difficult for them. I'll never forget hearing the words from a person in that context who said, my past, it was almost like their mantra. My past disappoints me, my, my, my present troubles me, and the future, the future frightens me. It's almost like they said it a thousand times before. So think with me. Put yourself in the context that Jude is writing to. Angry, violent bullies throwing their weight around. They are a law to themselves. What Christ is for, they, they are against. What Christ is against, they are for. They work off instinct. That's, that's verses 15 and 16. It's just low brain thought. They care nothing of God's holy law. They know nothing of real community, of authentic Christianity. And, and they are constantly finding fault and they're just mean with it. And if you, if you had to grow up in a home like that, or in this context, if you had to grow up in a church like that, ask yourself the question, what do you need? What do you need? I mean, you need, you need like to get pumped up? No, what you need is a word from God. You need, if you would, some loving from God. You need to sit on the lap of God, grab a cookie and some milk, if you would, and, and let God say, I'm going to tell you the story of my amazing love for you. So, so you need truth about God. You need theology. As dry as it might seem to some of us, you need theology. Verse 1, do you see it there? You're called, you're loved, you're kept. Three marks, 
three theological marks of every genuine Christian. So these things are stronger than cast iron. These things run deep. They, get, they have deep roots and they're indispensable for Christian maturity. And this is why Christians walk around in such lack of maturity if that be the case. Because they don't know that they're called and they don't know that they're loved and they don't know that they're kept. So the first one, to those who have been called, verse 1b. And what this is, is this is God summoning the Christian to enter the covenant that he has made for them, the new covenant. So this is the initiative of God. This is God's initiative to secure for himself a people that are his very own, therefore is personally selected. And so in God's calling, when you look at it through the lens of the Bible, it's always retrospective. What I mean by that, the Bible always takes the calling and looks backwards. So, so if you know anything about hyper-Calvinism, you'll, you'll know that that's why hyper-Calvinists are that way. I, actually, I talked to one during lunchtime yesterday. But anyway, the reason why Jude tells them they're called is because it gives strong stakes to God's children. So this is staggering. God has called Christians to be with him forever in Christ and the calling is firm. Okay, so Jude is not writing calling in the general sense. Because he's writing to Christians, this is the special calling of God. This is when God awakens the dead human will, and God awakens the dead human heart, and he gives spiritual life, and he makes the once dead sinner able to say yes to the gospel because dead spiritual people can't make themselves spiritually alive. God must do it. And so God does it. And that is what Jude is saying to the Christians. The Apostle Paul says it like this, 2 Timothy 9. The power of God has saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of anything we've done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given to you, you ready? Before the beginning of time. Now that's astonishing. Before the beginning of time, this grace was given. So the calling is Firm. This has deep roots in God. The calling is fixed. This is John's gospel. No one can snatch them, his people, away from me, out of my hand. And it's also foundational. So, so genuine Christian, this is your past. Before there was time, space, or anything, before you even had a speck of interest in God, God called you out of darkness. This is foundational. You cannot lose God's choice. You cannot earn God's choice, nor can you have it taken away from you. To those who've been called. Secondly, to those who are loved by God the Father. Some translations say beloved in God the Father. And what we see here is that God's calling is is grounded in God's love. For when God calls sinners to himself through Jesus Christ, he becomes their father. So this is a present reality. This is who you are, genuine Christian. Your past grounded in God's calling. It's unbreakable. Your present is secure in God. God is your loving Father. And this love here is not this kind of gooey, sentimental love. I mean, that's nice. But this is a sacrificial love. This is a devoted love, an unchanging love. Romans 5.8, you know it well. God demonstrated his own love for us. In this, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so Jude writes this particular phrase in what is called the perfect tense. And the only reason why I tell you that is because it tells us that God took this love and he placed it on the believers just like 
the calling before the creation of the world, before you and I ever existed. And this love will continue in the present, and it will continue in the future perfectly. And the idea is that beyond then just being loved by God, but we're actually loved in God. That's why the ESV says beloved in God, so that, so that we're caught up in God, included, made, made one with Him. Proverbs 18, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and they are saved. So this is kind of a hint. Jude in verse 21, you can see if your Bible is open, keep yourself in God's love. Now it would be very, very hard to keep yourself in God's love if you're unsure of the whole thing to begin with. And if you're unsure, then Christian, listen, consider the cross And then consider God's word to you this morning. I have three words from God to you. Isaiah 49, 15. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will never forget you. Jeremiah 31, 3. I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with loving Kindness. 1 John 3 1. See, see how great the love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called the children of God. And that is what we are. So Jude would tell us in our present state, whether it's a suffering or calm or safe, whatever the state is, we are loved. We are loved because God is your Father. We are loved because Christ is the Savior. So the whole weight of the thing about God's love for us is on and in Christ. Now, if you're thinking and you're normal and you have maybe just a speck of humility in you, that is amazing. That is absolutely amazing. And that's what Jude is doing. He's trying to buttress up the church from all those ugly people. We'll have to talk more about in a minute. A hymn. Two hymns come to mind. Because people write hymns when they're just captivated by this love. The love of God is greater, far than tongue or pen can tell. Can you imagine being the person who wrote that line, what they were involved in, in the love of God? Stuart Townend, before, love before the dawn of time, chosen by my maker, hidden in my Savior. I am his and he is mine, cherished for eternity. Now, before we move to the third mark of a genuine Christian, can you see again what Jude is doing? This is so, so important. To those in the church who are under the thumb and threat of those sinister, evil people. Okay, we're not going to have time to expound completely verse 4. We'll have to save that for a couple of weeks. But if you look at verse 4, those are essentially two marks of a false Christian. Two marks of a false Christian. They pervert God's grace, antinomianism, against God's moral law. They're self-ruled. They're against what God loves and they're for what Christ does not or God does not. So they pervert God's grace and they deny Christ as king, only sovereign and Lord. Two marks of of a false profession. So then these people, these evil people by their lives, they don't consider Christ as Lord but themselves as Lord. The moral law of God is not a guide for them how to live and love people and love God but it's foolish to them. It's archaic Man's laws under God's laws or church polity, uh, they don't fare any better at all. So as you think about these things, the God who demands exclusive worship will not be heeded by these individuals. 
The God that demands we worship him sincerely and correctly won't be heeded. The God who demands that his name not be misused by our lips or by our life will not be heeded. The God who says one day in seven to spend time in public and private worship, rest and service will not be heeded. To these people, Sunday is just like another Saturday. And then as you think about the rest of these commands, because I just gave you the first four commands. They won't obey their parents. They'll have hatred. There'll be fidel- infidelity in marriage. And there won't be any purity before marriage. No impure thoughts or impure thoughts. They'll have them. Theft, slander, lies. Commandments 7, 8, 9, and then 10. They're continually dissatisfied with what God has given them. So they covet houses and they covet spouses and they covet stuff. Here's the point. It's not that they struggle with the law for obedience because all of us struggle with the law for obedience. So it's not that they struggle against the law. It's just that they ignore the law altogether, the moral law of God. So, so can you imagine a person like that in the church of Jesus Christ and what a royal mess they would make and what fears that they would stir so Jude writes a letter to comfort, to stabilize, and tells them, your, your past is very, very sound. God has called you. It's an irrevocable calling. You're safe. You're always going to be safe. And your present situation is just dipped in the love of God. And this love is displayed on Calvary's cross. You're completely safe. Don't question it. No one, nothing can separate you from God's love. And it's not so much because of you. It's because of Christ. Okay, then someone pipes up, what about the future? There's always that kind of person. What about the future? Everything's okay now, but what about the future? Well, that's what Jude writes to. Still in verse 1b, the genuine Christian called, loved, and kept by Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ is not a man that he would lie. Jesus promised his followers that he would protect them and from the forces of evil and from the evil one himself in this life. That's John 17, 12. So he promised that now you'll be kept. And then he promised that even as our future un- our changes, he will be unchanging. He will protect us and he will keep us in his love. But here Jude writes, and the word that he uses is the Greek word te reo. And the reason why I tell you that is because it means to keep under and maintain all throughout. In other words, this is throughout the coming of Jesus Christ, that we're going to be kept in Jesus Christ until our salvation is fully completed. We have glorified bodies and the final judgment unfolds. So what Jude is saying is there's no person and there's no power greater than Christ. There's no force which can break his grip on his true children. There's no hostile forces that can outperform Christ. And as you think about this, because in our situation, I mean, it's there and it's real, but, but there's certain times in history it's even more real. So I was thinking about the martyrs. To be known that they were kept by Jesus Christ, isn't that what gave them such courage? I'm going to read you one quote from a Christian martyr. His name was Polycarp, 168 AD. The, the local magistrate straight from Smyrna says, renounce Christ. Now, Polycarp is an 86-year-old man, okay? And, and the, the, the magistrate renounced Christ. And this is what he says. I shall not do what you would persuade me to. Eighty and six years have I now served Christ, and he has never done me the least wrong. 
That's, that's just beautiful, isn't it? He's never done me the least wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king and my savior? You threaten me with fire which burns for an hour and so is extinguished. But know not the fire of the future judgment and of that eternal punishment which is reserved for the ungodly. And then listen to what he says. But why do you wait? Bring forth what you will. For he has given me strength to endure the fire. Point of fact, the fire never touches them and they have to, they have to kill him by sword. It's good, isn't it? Listen, if Christ can keep him in that, can he not keep us in this, whatever our particular this is? Of course he can. So Jude helps Christians. He helps all Christians and he helps his readers keep these great truths before you. Keep them in the forefront of your mind. You're called by Almighty God before creation. You're loved by this God who is your Father and you will be kept and are being kept and you will be brought safely to Jesus Christ by Jesus Christ. All three tenses, past, called, present, loved, future, kept. All those things to tell us at least this, that in the ebb and flow of life in a fallen world, filled with imperfect people like you and I, filled with so much uncertainty, filled with fear and hate, and people who are behaving like beasts, Jew would say, beloved of Jesus Christ, because of Jesus Christ, you're going to be fine. You are going to be just fine because you're called and you're loved and you're kept because that is God's be- wonderful initiative on his true people. That's, that's a thoughtful reminder, is it not? A thoughtful reminder. Secondly, a generous prayer. Verse 2. The RSV, Revised Standard Version, says it like this. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Now, I really like Jude. Jude's a good pastor. He deals with things in threes, right? Right? Three certainties about Christians called kept loved. And now he gives this trifecta of blessing to his readers. What a great way to start a letter. What a great way to start a conversation. You ever thought about that? I, I always ask the staff here, the elders as well, I ask them what I learned from someone else, that, that whenever you're with people, make sure that at the end of your time together, in a significant moment, when they come to you for help, guidance, direction, make sure you pray with them. Pray with them before you depart from them. And so Jude's a good pastor. He knows that there is a great need for God to do something to watch over these people and so he does what sensible pastors do and they pray, pray, pray. He prays mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. In other words, in an ever-growing measure. What is mercy? Mercy is the very foundation of all the good that we receive from God. That's why we have to ask for mercy in prayer because it's not deserved and so it ought not to be ungraciously assumed in life. Because mercy is only in Christ. It's only in Christ that we can have it, that we can expect it, and it's only in Christ that we can ask God for it, which makes the whole thing so wonderful. And if you're thinking, which makes it easier for the Christian to be around that is aware of this. If we understand our need of mercy, I guarantee you will be much easier to be around because we'll extend it to people just like Christ has extended it to us because In the mind of God, this is God's incredible calculation. Even as we continue to sin, 
Even as we continue to sin, God will multiply his mercy to his own. To his own. Our need for mercy will never exceed God's provision of mercy. And if you're a sinner like me, that's very good news. Peace. The word literally means a mind that isn't falling apart. Peace. A mind that isn't falling apart. A kept whole mind, if you would, peace of mind. Now, do you know how many people just are in desperate need of peace of mind? December 25th, 2013, New York Times article. The article said that the fastest growing ailments of emergency room condition is mental health. 6.4 million visits due to mental health issues in the ER in the United States of America. Up 28% from just four years ago. Peace of mind. J.I. Packer, Knowing God. 1993 edition, page 41 and 42. Listen to what he writes. Peace of mind. I am graven on the palm of God's hand. I am, I am never out of his mind. Uh, and let me tell you what I love about this. It's all on God. It's not because, you know, bank account is high and I'm feeling frisky and strong. It's none of that stuff. Listen. All my knowledge of him depends on his sustained initiative in knowing and caring for me. I know him because he first knew me and continues to know me. He knows me as a friend, one who loves me. And there's no moment when his eye is off me or his attention distracted from me. And no moment, therefore, when, he care, when his care for me falters. I am never out of his mind. Mercy, peace, be yours in an ever-increasing measure Question then, can it get any better than that? Shouldn't we just stop there? Answer, it can get a lot better because it's God we're talking about. Do you see the third blessing? Love. God's love be yours in an ever-increasing measure. Now, as you grow older and that prayer is prayed and it's received, can you, can you imagine what it would be like to know that ever-increasing love of God? You're not going to be, excuse me, a humpty grumpty when you get old. You're going to be nice and kind because you're loved by God. So I translated this myself, and this is how I determined it. May fresh experiences of the great love of God be yours in the land of the living. May fresh experiences of the great love of God be yours in the land of the living. I just prayed that for you. No matter your circumstances. Even if your circumstances are horrible. Even if they're like the circumstances that Jude writes to. May fresh experiences of the great love of God be yours in the land of the living. So so again, Jude is a wonderful pastor. He's going to buttress up the people. How does he do it? Does he kind of just like, you know, get them in some kind of spiritual high? No. No, he grounds them in the gospel. And not in circumstances which come and go. And then he prays for them. He blesses them because Jude knows there's a supernatural element that that is most definitely needed for God's people. So someone has to pray for them because a man can't give that to another man or another woman. Only God can give this to his true children. So the weaker we feel, you know, Paul says it like this, who is sufficient for these things? The weaker we feel, the more we pray. 
And the more we pray, God comes down and he takes hold of this whole situation that he already has hold of in the first place, but he's just kind of in the prayer, scrubbed our eyes clean. Now we see things as they are and God by his mercy and by his peace and by his love has answered the prayers of his servant. Are you with me? A thoughtful reminder Theology, genuine Christianity. Who are you, Christian? You're called, you're loved, and you're kept permanently by God because of God in Christ. A kind prayer, mercy, peace, and love. I always wonder if we're actually praying this for each other. Mercy, peace, and love be yours in an ever-increasing measure to infinity and beyond. Finally, a necessary appeal. We won't spend much time in this. Verses 3 and 4. And so what we learn in verse 3 is a lesson about the inspiration of the Scriptures. Because the humanness of Jude is not lost even as God's Spirit oversees the letter's truth. Do you see it there, verse 3? I was meaning to write to you one thing. Point of fact, he was saying, I was giving due diligence to write to you the gospel, the salvation we share. But, verse 3, NIV, I felt I had to write. ESV, I found it necessary to write. J.B. Phillips, I feel compelled to make my letter to you an earnest appeal. In other words, Jude's saying the circumstances change. Now, what does that tell us? Well, it tells us that New Testament writers are not automatons. They're not robots writing. This, this isn't dictation. Uh, the Muslim would say that their holy book was dictated word by word uh, from God to the person. So everything the person was writing, he was listening in his head and he was writing down on the paper. That's not what the New Testament says here. People are thinking and they're writing and they're writing in a context. All the while they're being carried along by the Holy Spirit, 2 Peter 2.21. So this isn't dictation, but this is inspiration. And so Jude's concern is straightforward. He's not making a suggestion. He's not telling them, I want you to consider this. He makes an appeal. Stand for the gospel. Christian, contend for the gospel. It's the exact same thing that Paul writes to the church in Philippi. Listen, this is chapter 1, verse around verse 27 and 28. Stand firm, church, in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And then he says, without being frightened, by those who would unsettle you. Same thing happening here. False people with the false gospel, they seem to just thrive in fear. And Paul says, don't be afraid of them. Now notice the phrase at the end of verse 3, contend for the faith. Not faith, but the faith that was once and for all entrusted to the saints. In other words, The issue that is under concern here is the gospel that saves us. The gospel which delivers us. So this is the gospel that that tells us we are redeemed. And if we're going to be redeemed, we have to believe this gospel. And we have to hold to this gospel if we're going to be of any use at all to anyone. So ours is an objective gospel. And every so often you'll hear people or maybe just read articles that say that they try to give the impression that way back then they really didn't know the whole gospel. They didn't really have a handle on the gospel or the gospel changes to to fit trends. And of course that's absolute nonsense. Listen to your Bible, Galatians 1. 
I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. In other words, what Paul says is you already know the gospel. It's been proclaimed to you. It's saved you. It's clear. It's, it's not changing. And Jude says the exact same conclusive statement. You've given yourself to this objective, understood, unchanged, real gospel. So you have a choice. Either you uphold it and adhere to it, or you can be deviated from and reject it. And Jude says, I want to remind you that, that you're living in a context, you're living in a period of time where there's deviation all around you, and, and loved ones, so are we. And what I'm telling you is objective. The gospel of Jesus Christ is once for all. It's been entrusted to us. Don't mess with it. Don't fiddle with it. And, but rather contend for it. So someone said it like this. This is the one gospel from the one God about the one way of salvation through the one mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ, once for all. Period. And Jude tells us we have to contend for that gospel. So, so it's amazing, isn't it, when you receive a package from UPS or FedEx and they give you that little tracking number, right? And then this, that beautiful romance starts and they email you, we just shipped it, it's being shipped, it's moving along, it's almost there, it's in Iowa, it's in Minnesota, here it comes, get ready. And you're like, guys, it's just a book, <laughs> you know, just settle down. I don't need all that information, I just want to make sure that I get the book and that's it. But you know why they do it. They, they care about what they've entrusted to you, that they'll, you'll get that book in a certain day at a certain time. And they do a fantastic job of giving us whatever it is we sent for. That's the exact same concern of Jude. The gospel has come to us by special delivery. You did not invent the gospel. It is the gospel of God. God delivered it to you. You signed up for it and you signed to it. So Jude is compelled, and Joe is compelled too. It's a great question. What are you doing with the one gospel that we signed up for? What are we doing with the one gospel we've been entrusted with? For the gospel will be either under attack by addition or subtraction, or we'll put the gospel on ice, or we'll contend for it. Right? Either, Either it will be under attack by addition or subtraction, we'll put it on ice, or we'll contend for it. So Anthony Freeman, who wrote the book God in Us, and he wrote the other book, New Christianity for the New World. And in that book, he systematically denies the exclusivity of the gospel, the atonement, and Christ's substitutionary death. What do we do in that situation? We contend. We contend for the gospel and just how morality has changed in our world. What do we do? We contend for the gospel. A quote, a line, we're done. Martin Luther, if I professed with the loudest voice and clearest exposition every portion of the truth of God except precisely that little point when the world and the devil are at that moment attacking, I am not confessing Christ, however boldly I may be professing Christ. Where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is proved. And to be steady on all the battlefield besides is mere flight and disgrace if he flinches at that one 
single point. Martin Luther. May God help us not to flinch. And may God help us to understand this and believe these things in our day. Let's bow together. And thank you for your attention this morning. Our gracious God and Father, we do ask for the grace to understand and believe. We do ask, Father, that we would know in a peculiar, peculiar helpful way that we are called and we are loved and we're kept. And these are our gospel certainties. And may mercy, peace, and love be to your people this morning in an ever-increasing measure. And may the love of God and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be our portion both this morning and every morning for Jesus' sake. Amen.